talk about finding rest. And we've been, since the beginning of January, talking through this idea of finding rest. The idea about it, I think for everybody, is rest kind of runs away from you if you don't on purpose pursue it. Um, and so as we have talked through these things, I said this last week and I'm going to say it again, if the, the product of this in your life has not been a more restful soul, then we've missed it somehow. What I would say is maybe the topics we've talked about aren't the core of what is unrest in your soul. And maybe tonight what we talk about will be, I don't know. But I would tell you the promise from Christ is clear. Come to me, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your soul. If you have not found that, seek the Lord. Because he says, come to me, not figure out what I think or, you know, what I've said or keep, you know, all. come to me. And so all the things we're talking about are the ways that we get stopped from coming to him, whether it was the myth of more or the cancer of fear or the comparison trap or whatever it was. It was just a way to get our eyes off of our Savior, get stuck in our humanity so that we live embroiled in, in our soul, in a storm in our soul at unrest instead of finding rest. And so uh, last week we were talking about how um, we can get into this tailspin in the ideas of guilt and shame and regret. And I don't know, we didn't get to finish it, so we're going to pick that up. So if you have a note sheet, the, the side that says week six is the second topic, but the side that says continued from last week, that's where we're going to start. And if you were here last week and you got a note sheet last week, you'll recognize this is the same uh, side of, of the sheet as was the back side that we didn't really talk through last week. And what we were talking through is how when I accept the messages that guilt and shame and regret stir up in my mind, I live at unrest in my soul because I believe, I put my faith in those things as being true, as being testimonies of what is true about me. And so I, I live going down, down, down in that swirl into darkness, almost irredeemable darkness it can feel like, because nothing you can do can go back and change those things. And so every time they come up, you have to kind of surrender to, I cry, uncle, yes, you're right, that's true. I've got no defense. I did that. I said that. I thought that. That was me. Or those things were said about me and they sound true. They feel true and lots of people believe them, so they must be me. And in those conversations internally, they overwhelm you, right? And so you find yourself spiraling down. So then we talked about the response to that. We started talking about the response to that, and that's what I want to get to tonight because I think this is powerful. Um, and we, we kind of went through these questions kind of progressively. The first question is, is there any such thing as a lost cause with an almighty God? Um, theoretically, no. But what do you, search your heart, what do you believe in your soul? Do you believe that anyone you bump into is a lost cause? I mean, you can think of some like really far gone people. You can hear about far gone. Is anyone in the face of an almighty God a lost cause? No. So I believe that, but sometimes I, I don't let that get all the way down to the bottom of me. I don't let it become practical about who I'm face to face with or who I'm on the phone with or who I'm behind the keyboard with, right? Everybody is redeemable. But then make it personal. Second question is, 
So do I, be I believe that about everybody, but am I included? <laughs> Is my mess too big for God to redeem it? When God says that He washes me clean, is that literally clean? Or is it still kind of dirty and stained? Well, yeah, but you know, there's still stuff in my life that came out of those mistakes. Yes, exactly. So what you've got to decide is whether you believe what God says about you eternally is true or whether what the circumstances of life tell you is the truth. Because that will define whether or not guilt or regret or shame take hold of you. And the last one is, you know, what's the character of God? What do I really believe God's heart is for me? Do I believe that God is just eager to write me off? That He's ready, He's got His smite button up in heaven, and He's just waiting for me to mess up so He can get me. Like, ha-ha, see, I told you. Is that, what's the character of God? When you go to the Lord after you've blown it, when you go to the Lord and you're in the middle of that cycle, that, that, that down death spiral, downward, and you cry out to the Lord, what is His attitude, His affect, His posture towards you? Is it disappointment? Is it grief? Is it disgust? Is it apathy? What is His heart toward? What do you believe? He thinks towards you. Now, what do you think? Because those are different things. What do you believe? What do you embrace? What do you hold? And that defines a big difference between whether life is on your shoulders or not. Whether your worth is on you to figure out or whether it's something you receive by faith. And so we started by looking at Romans 8.1. If anyone's in Christ, they are, uh, or excuse me, uh, therefore in Christ there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Condemnation means you blew it, you received judgment, and from that judgment you received damnation. You received punishment. So you have been actually done the wrong, you have been weighed in doing that wrong, and you have been punished for doing that wrong. Condemnation. What he says is, in Christ, there is no condemnation. So if in my head, I go around and around with, you stupid, stupid person, what's wrong with you? You're an idiot. You're a loser. Nobody likes you. Why would, any, why would God ever listen to you? What could you possibly do to make up for that? If I routinely condemn myself, weigh myself, find myself wanting, and give myself punishment in my head, and God says there's no condemnation, who's right? I find myself out of step with God, don't I? And it becomes a broader theme. And I think if you get a hold of this, um, there, there's some stuff that I've read in my life that has deeply in, in, in changed the way that I think about God. And, and I've mentioned the book Search for Significance. It put a lot of words to that for me. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple other books. There's a book, Grace Walk. And there are things that transformed the way that I process my Christian walk with God um, that set my feet on some solid ground. But it came to a decision of faith, whether I'm going to believe what God says is true and whether I'm going to accept His approach as He tells me how to live and walk this Christian life. And there's strength in the way God presents it and there's death in the way most Christians try to walk it. Right? So, 
What does God say about our identity and our ability to change? All right, 2 Corinthians 5.17, which is the verse I started quoting mistakenly a couple minutes ago. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. So what is that saying about you and I, if we have received Christ? What does Paul say about us when we receive Christ? What is true about us? Renewed, okay. Spiritually renewed. We are guiltless. Forgiven. I mean, the old me is gone. The new me has come. So if I'm in Christ, that person, that sinful, lost person, eternally is gone. What we think is, well, I'm still here. It's still me. Look, it's still me. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't change my hair color. My eyes are the same. Like, but this is the tent you live in while you're here on this earth. This isn't the real you, right? The real you, when this tent, you're done living in this one, you move on, and the real you goes on eternally, right? So that's the you that gets transformed from death to life. Spiritually, you become alive. And it says you are made new. You are recreated. It's not renovated. It's not like he went through with a vacuum cleaner and like cleaned up and, you know, polished and trashed the old. The old is put to death, resurrected new in Christ. We're talking about transformation, not reformation. You see the difference? And that principle you'll see over and over again in Scripture is the foundation for the way that we are to live. Your identity is the calling for how you are to live. The problem for most Christians, especially those who get stuck in guilt and shame and regret, is we tend to define the, the, the life we're living and the people that we are by what we do, by how we perform. I am the sum total of how well I've performed. Well, how well I've measured up. And we take commandments, here's the Ten Commandments, and here's the New Testament thing, and all these commands, and we measure ourselves against them, and we say, I will be worth my performance. That's how much I'm worth. And if I perform badly, I'm worth less. And if I perform well, I'm worth more. And so guilt gets a grip on me because I don't want to keep underperforming. So I, I use guilt as a motivator. <laughs> You know, don't, you don't want to go down here because you're going to just find yourself a wash in guilt. But it's a demotivator. It sucks the life out of us. And so God takes us back to our identity time and time again. He says, you are not what you have done. You are who you are born to be. That's a big difference. Think about that. You are not what you've done. You are who you were born to be. And I've used this illustration many times, so if you've heard it before, forgive me. But... If I decided that I felt, I know this is kind of very topical for today, but if I felt like I was a chicken and I started strutting around and flapping wings and, you know, pecking at the ground, my actions say chicken. Well, my actions say crazy, but my actions say chicken. Did I just transform into a chicken because I'm acting like a chicken? What defines who I am? Who I was born as, right? 
So spiritually speaking, get a hold of this. Spiritually speaking, are you what you do or are you who you've been born to be? Jesus says that if anyone comes, he will be born again. Not born of the flesh, but born of the Spirit. So your identity is a matter of who you've been born to be, not the actions that you've done. By the way, does anyone here believe that you got saved by performing well enough? And Paul in Galatians, the whole book of Galatians says, if you don't believe you got saved by performing well enough, why would you believe that you gain God's approval after you're saved by performing well enough? Whole book of Galatians, read it. This is not made up stuff. This is foundational. And when I let shame and guilt and regret drive my life, it's the way the enemy gets me off the track of the gift God has given me that I now own, not because I'm worthy, but because he gave it to me by the riches of his grace. And no one can pluck me out of his hand and nothing can separate me from his love, not height, not depth, not angels, not demons, not anything. Why? Because I didn't earn it. It was given to me. And so then, what you find in the New Testament are passages like 1 Corinthians 6 and Titus 3. So go with me to Titus 3 real quick. Because then you find that when we are called to live as children of God, it's always based on the fact that we are children of God. That it would be as ridiculous for us to live otherwise as it would be for me to act like a chicken. It's not who I am. It's not who I'm born to be. It's not because I'm scared about God smiting me, and it's not because somebody's disappointed in me or going to disapprove of me. It's because that's not who I am. I'm a child of God. So uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. Listen to the progression. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So before, the old me, all that stuff. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. He has made us His children. He has made us heirs with Christ. He has given us the hope, the confident assurance of eternal life. And we did nothing for it. But we are transformed because of His work in us. All right? So jump back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And this, this trips people up all the time, especially today in today's world when we talk about uh, like homosexuality, gay marriage, things like that. People go to this passage and they get tripped up. So let me give you, we've already read through this, but let me take you back to it. Because even after we went through it, I had people come to me and throw this at me that just missed the whole point of this. All right, so big context here. The book of Corinthians is written to whom? The Corinthian church. So, basic question, believers, not believers? Believers. Okay, we, are we all agreed? Does anybody wonder if we're talking about believers when we talk to the Corinthian church? 
Okay, we're all on the same page. All right, so in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul kind of goes through this. And if you start with me at verse 9, here's what he starts with. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's where people stop a lot of times. So that means if you are homosexual, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Case dismissed. Except that's not the point and that's not the context. Okay? Because who, who else is in that list? Swindlers? Greedy? Oh, well, we don't go the same hard on those people, do we? We just pick one out. Uh, and then, oh, that's the way it is. See, the Bible says it. Yeah, well, the Bible says a lot of that stuff. What's it talking about? What's he talking about here? I'm going to tell you what he's talking about. Identity. Keep going. Verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what's he saying? You used to be that which is why you did that. And when people are that and do that, they're not a part of the kingdom of God. But you're not that anymore because you were saved and set apart. Now, have you asked yourself the question yet? Why is Paul talking about this to the Corinthians? Keep going. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to anything, but you will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach. And then verse 18, flee from what? Sexual immorality. Now, at the beginning of verse 9, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the first one is sexually immoral. So what's he saying here? If you're sexually immoral, you can't inherit the kingdom of God, right? Is that what he's saying? Who's being sexually immoral? The Corinthian church. So what's he saying to them? You've been made new. Stop acting like you're still the old. He is challenging them to a life that reflects by faith who God made them. Does that make sense? Because that's the whole point of that lead up is what he's about to say to them. You can't just do whatever you want like you're not, end of the passage, bought with a price. Your body is not yours. You need to act like you're a child of God. You need to act like you're a person of faith, which means no matter what happens in your life, faith is the key element of that, believing that you are who God made you to be. You are who you were born to be as a believer. And that should drive everything about your spiritual walk. The faith and the confidence that you are a child of God because of the riches of His grace that you've been forgiven, that you've been set free, that you are not your mistakes, that you are not your past, that God is able to overcome anything, that He is a redeemer and a rescuer and a savior, and that every time I take the mess of my life and put it in His hands and abandon it by desperation to God, He fixes it. He heals it. He solves it. He makes good out of darkness and, and, and life out of death because that's the redeemer we have. And when I walk by faith in those truths, I'm walking in my identity. 
right? So guilt, shame want to say to you, you are not who God made you to be. You are what you've done. And God says, you're not what you've done. I wash that away. You are who you were born to be spiritually. If you've accepted me, you're my child. You're my beloved. And I hold you. Nothing you do will separate you from me or from my love. Nothing. The question is whether we will live actively in that faith or whether we will push that away. And it's a question of faith. It's always a question of faith. Sometimes one of the, what we do is we find ways to, to deal with shame or guilt or regret. We find ways to cope with it instead of getting down to the root of it. The root of it is they are liars. There is resolution for that stuff, and resolution comes from identity. So what we wind up doing is we wind up keeping secrets. We've got a secret life off here to the side. We wonder why our soul is so dead. Because I'm living in a shame that's not exposed yet. But I'm living in the tension of that shame without experiencing it. I'm living under the threat of the public shame. Because I don't believe God is good enough or big enough for that shame to come out and say, but that's not who I am. And I'm just going to stop living like I'm not, like who I'm not, and I'm going to start living like who I am. There is a trap set for us. And I'm saying, you'll find it causes deep unrest in your soul. Uh, One more passage before we flip over and look at the last thing. Philippians chapter 3. See what Paul recommends and chooses to do himself with the choices in our past that we regret and could cause us shame. Paul had a long history of choices that could have been, and he lists a lot of them, could have been at one time causes for him to be proud and full of himself, but now are causes for him to be ashamed of what he did. And so what does he do with that? Verse 12, not that I have already attained all this or have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He saved me and gave me a calling in my life, and I want that. So I press forward for that. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. The reason that I can strain towards what's ahead is because I let go of what's behind. I don't just let go of what's behind so I feel better. I let go of what's behind because that's not what I was made for. I was made for what's ahead. So I let go of what's behind so I can strain for what's ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul's advice to you if you struggle with guilt or shame or regret, forget what is behind. And there's some activeness to that. Let it go. Be done with it. Let God heal it. Stop reliving it. Stop regurgitating it. Stop mulling it over. Stop pulling it up and back and back and back and over and over and over again. Instead, forget what is behind and go towards what is ahead. All right, so that's shame and guilt and regret. Obviously, I pray that that's something that the enemy uh, does not have you stuck in, and if he does, that you'll experience the power of God in that. Last thing I want to talk about is This one, and I think this is just, it's a very simplistic thing, but I think it's something that is very culturally relevant for us today. Because we're Americans, and because be American means you are free, you are independent, 
You're able to do what you want. As a matter of fact, in one of our founding documents, it talks about we should be able to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And everybody's got a different idea about what makes them happy. So you should be able to pursue whatever makes you happy. Because like that's the highest goal that we could possibly have. That's what a country puts in front of us. That's not what God put in front of us. Okay? So the trap here is pretty simple. That if I could just have what I want, I could have rest in my soul. If I could, there's something that I need, and if I could have that, then I would have what I want. And if I had what I want, I could be at rest. So what would it take for you to have rest in your soul? Your flesh has an answer almost right away. It would take a little more quiet in my life. It would take somebody not nagging me. It would take, you know, less on my plate, one less job, a little bit more money. What, like, if I could just have what I have decided would be good, if I could have my desires fulfilled, if I could just indulge whatever I want, throw off restraint, live in freedom, live self-determined, I'd be all right. And so the reality here is that our choices become that we adopt our own advice. Yes, that's true. Oh, you're so smart. We have these conversations in our hands. Man, I, why doesn't anybody listen to you? When you pray, why doesn't God listen to you and just give you what you asked for? Because if you just had what you asked for, then you could have rest in your soul. I don't understand. It would be so simple. God, what's, what's stopping you? I thought you loved me. What are we doing? We are believing that our own thoughts and our own advice tell us the truth enough that we have faith in it, and if we would just be able to live out our own advice, we would be all right. And so we live in things. We make choices, and those choices reflect that we have believed our own propaganda. We have believed our own lies. So we live in pride. I'm just you know, smarter than they are. I've just, we say it nicely. I've lived more than they have. I've experienced things. Someday they'll grow. You know, these kind of things. And we get very uh, critical of other people and very judgmental of other people. And we, we make sure that everybody knows that we're smarter than they are. We've grown more than they have. And the result is, I've indulged in my advice that letting everyone know how smart I am will make me feel better. But what does it do? It just creates more storm in me. See, if I don't have to watch what I'm doing, if I can just live anyhow I want, anyhow my flesh wants, I'll be fine. You know, somebody hurts me. I should be able to live in bitterness. I should be able to indulge my anger. I should be able to let that be fuel for me. If someone's hurt me, I should just live there and live there and live there. But what is that? There's no rest. There's death. Certainly that idea appeals to us as Americans, but absolutely as humans. That if I could throw off restraint, if I didn't have responsibility, if I didn't have duty, if I didn't have to make life happen with things that were unpleasant, if I didn't have to endure, if I didn't have to wait, if I could just have what I want, then I could be at rest in my soul. Have you ever gotten what you wanted and found that it didn't bring rest for your soul? There were, you know, I've, I've had conversations before, a few conversations about marriage issues. There were some people that believed if they could get married, they would have rest in their soul. Guess what? Marriage doesn't do that. <laughs> I've had people before who were uh, just crushed under the weight of childlessness and feeling like if God would just bless us with a child, then I just know my soul would be full and satisfied. Being a parent does not bring rest for your soul. 
you got to find it in there. It brings a lot of turmoil to you. Do you know what I'm saying? There, I mean, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just have more time off, if I could, whatever it is, if I could just have what I want, then rest. But rest doesn't come through those things. Rest comes elsewhere. What does the Bible have to say about this? So I put down 1 Thessalonians 4, and it's about sexuality, but I think it, it has a bigger application. So let me just read it to you. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 8. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we have told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. So here's, obviously there's a lot to that, but here's the the, the thing that I'm pointing it out for. Is it unnatural for someone, you know, to look at uh, someone of, of the opposite sex and find them attractive? Is that unnatural? That's a pretty normal thing. But what does he say? Avoid sexual immorality. In other words, just because something is a natural feel doesn't make it right. This is not popular in our world today. Because whatever you feel like drives what your truth is. But God says there are natural drives in us that we are called to set aside. We are called to control. We are called to even deny. And it's not just before you're married. Sometimes we get on like, you know, the singles and the teens and like, before you're married. When you're married, you're called to self-control. Because there's one that you can be with, and the rest of them are out of bounds. And so we don't, you should be under control in that area because of who you were made to be. You see? So the idea here is if your flesh will have desires that God says, I don't want you to fulfill that. So you walk in, some, we used to go on Wednesday nights before youth group stuff was here and our kids would come with us. We used to go on Wednesday nights after this to. Uh, a diner and get a slice of pie or something and some coffee and sit and, and have a date. You walk in and there's this whole lineup of cakes. Which one do you want? Yes, all every, all, uh, that and that and that and that. Just because I want it, is that evil? Is that wicked? No, it's normal and you look at it. But what am I called to in my appetite? I'm called to be in control of that appetite and to deny some things that I want that aren't wicked and evil, but are not what I should do. So there, is, there are things in your life, even if you say, well, what's wrong with it? I've had people say that. Well, what's wrong? I don't see anything wrong with it. Where's the Bible say something's wrong with it? There are things that's nothing is you can prove wrong with it. It's still not your calling because by faith, God's asked you to deny that, to set that aside. And so in, in what we teach and preach in Scripture, as you read the Word of God, and we talk about today's debate about gay marriage and whatever, I'm certainly never going to you know, 
look down on someone where they've come to some conclusion on that or whatever, but I'm going to tell them the truth, which is God did not design people to live in a homosexual relationship. And He doesn't want that for them. It's not going to be fulfilling. It's not going to be satisfying. He's called them, whether that's a natural desire for them or not, He's called them to deny it, to set it aside. That's what He's called them to. Is that fair? Let's, let's talk to God about what fair is after He sent His Son to die for your sin. Like, we're not in the realm of fair here. We're in the realm of right or wrong. So that's what God's asked them to do. And God has asked us to deny a lot of things that we want. Would we be willing to walk by faith and do that? And so I think that has a lot of application to our current culture that says, whatever makes you happy, do what." You'll hear this all the time. You should do whatever makes you happy. Except it's a lie that leads you to unrest in your soul because it promises that if you can just follow your heart enough and your desires enough, if you can just get enough of what would you want, then you'll be satisfied. And you won't. Uh, 1 John 2, 15-17. Pretty familiar verses. Hopefully they're ones that you have heard before. It says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Okay, so what does this tell us about our desires If I could just do what I want, if I could just do whatever I want, if I didn't have restraint, if I didn't have restrictions, if I didn't have duty, if I didn't have responsibility, if I could just do what I want, I would have rest in my soul. What does this tell us about our desires, our human desires? They are not from God. Loving the world is not from God. But what's the last part tell us? They're temporary. They will pass away. And you've probably already experienced this. When you were 10 years old, what you were desperate for for your birthday, what you knew would make your life complete, you don't even remember what that was. The desires of this life pass away. One day they're all gone. Right? But whoever plants themselves in the will of God, that lasts forever. So there is this lie at play around us all the time. The things of this world, the circumstances of this world, the things that you can change in this world to make what you think they should be, pour your passion into that. And they will pay off big time, except they don't. People who have all kinds of stuff of this world, power, popularity, influence, fame, Are these people all well satisfied because they have the things of this world? Or are they pretty much a mess too? Does that tell you anything? Does that instruct us about the lie? There is no satisfaction. There is no rest down the path of, I should be able to do whatever I want. Instead, we get some different advice. I'm going to go flip back to to Jeremiah chapter 6 real quick because I want to read what he says here, and then I want to come back to 1 John chapter 3. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, he says this, 
This is what the Lord says, speaking to the people of Israel. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. You hear that passage. Tell me what goes on in your head. Give me some feedback. Let me read it again. Tell me what this says to you. Because this is Jeremiah talking to people who were God's people for hundreds of years, had tasted his deliverance and his goodness and his power in many, many different ways. This is what Jeremiah says to them. Here's what the Lord says to you. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths and ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. How did we... We chose unrest over rest. How? Because why? We decided that what God said, thanks for the advice, no. And by rejecting what God laid out as the good path for us, we also rejected what he wanted to give us, rest for our soul. Bob? Yep. But what we don't do, that's exactly right, but what we don't do is we don't connect that mindset, because we excuse that mindset. We don't connect that to the condition of our soul, to how, my experience, how I'm living. God offers direction. God offers us you know, guidance. Walk in the good path. And we say, no, I'm not going to walk in that. And then there's fallout in our lives. We, we doubt ourselves. We struggle with guilt. We struggle with shame. We struggle with worry. We struggle with restlessness. We get into dark places. We, all this stuff. But we never connect it back to God said, go this way. And we went, no. I got this covered. I'm going to do this. Because this is what I want. And that doesn't look really appealing to me. That looks distasteful. What we've done is we've kind of gotten tricked. We've gotten fooled by our eyes. It's almost like a magic trick. We've gotten tricked into thinking that what I see down this path and what I see down this path tell me the truth. But faith would have told me right from the get that going wherever God says is going to bring rest for my soul and rejecting whatever God says is going to bring unrest to my soul. Faith would have told me that, but I don't adopt faith. I adopt sight and go, yeah, God's calling me down some bumpy roads. I don't want to... That's too hard. I don't know if I got that in me. I don't, I don't want to do that. So I'm going to do this. So we choose unrest, but we say we have no choice. Right? Rob? I remember a teaching about focusing on what you want to have, and that will lead you to what you should do. And you never get around to who you should be, your identity you talk about. Whereas God says... Focus on who you are first, then that will tell you what to do, and don't worry about not having. So, what we should want shouldn't be the have part, the possessions and the power and the position and the pride and all that, but it should be who did God make me to be, for what purpose, for significance, and then that will lead me to what to do. If there's a faith response, yeah, everybody, I mean, when, you, when I say to you Psalm 23, everybody's really familiar with Psalm 23, right? Do you know why that's such a precious psalm? It teaches this. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need. I shall not want. 
What? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Like that whole passage is, God is my shepherd. I am a sheep. My trust is in him. He provides what I need. Whatever he brings my way is good for me. Wherever he takes me is good for me, is right for me because he knows me. He's watching out for me and I trust him with everything. So I don't have to get up tomorrow and figure out what pasture are we going to today, Shep, you know. Where he's going, I'm going. He's the shepherd. He's got me. I got, and that whole passage speaks about that idea of rest. But we shove it aside. Bye. Well, when he talks about rest, is he talking about complete rest? Or is that something we only have when we go to heaven? In other words, what I'm saying is he talks about having rest. So... Right now, I'm in, I'm in the mode. If I have my wife, I'd have rest, but I know that can be temporary. But, so, if I, but I have a problem, uh, well, I, I'm not sure I will ever have complete rest while I'm here without. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. I think there's, there are moments there, and, and you're definitely in a moment like that, where the human experience is so intense of loss, that it takes a while for me to get my bearings on that. But I also don't believe that there is no promise of rest for you in this life. I think there is. I think it, it's walking that path, and that's, you know, a longer path than we want it to be. I believe I'll have that, but I don't know if it, I can't kind of believe that I'll have complete because I, she's not. I know. I, what I would say to you. Complete rest. It says rest. Right. So. I'm thinking that complete rest would be with Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. But, you know, same kind of thing with, okay, so, you know, you're, you're in a cage and you're going out to the lions tomorrow. Do you have complete rest or not? Do you know what I mean? Like, so, I mean, there are lots of those experiences where the, the human experience is so intense and so overwhelming that it makes logical sense to say, I can never have complete rest. But I don't, I think what happens in those scenarios is we find a way to put our focus on what we know is promised and live in that promise now. So there comes a way somehow down this road for you to experience the reality that you are going to be together forever and to live in the joy of that even though it's not here yet. Do you know what I mean? It's not today, but, it's, but that's where I think God takes us in those places of loss and those places of danger is to the place where the human experience like, has all of its noise and I'm kind of like sifting through it and I get to the place where I go, this is what I'm absolutely sure is true. And then that starts to grow into that rest inside of me. And I think it's something that grows over time, for sure. No, absolutely. But I think there's some comfort in knowing that's God's plan, you know, and that, and, and that it's okay to not be there yet. You know what I mean? It's okay that God has a process to take me from here to there. And even that, you know, the Lord is my shepherd leading me through that path, for sure. And I think, too, at the end of that psalm, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Like, if we had perfect rest what do we need mercy yeah i think that the shepherd is in these days yet promising his mercy yes for these moments where we're not Mm -hmm. we're 
not, it's not said and done. Yep. Goodness and mercy, but it, and and mercy following us because God pours knows a weakness of our flesh and knows how hard it is. He he sent his son here. His son experienced the loss so and cried. It was it so perfect rest is not just no emotion or no human experience. But surely, you see that word surely? It's like that thing like I'm holding on to this. Surely I know, even though I don't feel like it, I know goodness and mercy follow me. And so there's that determination to fight through to faith, to fight through to a place of believing. Um, and that's, I think, for all of us, day by day, is to believe that. Exactly, day by day. Mm-hmm. Because I could have full rest, and then the next morning I choose not to follow him, and I could go back to that. Uh, well, yeah, we all could. You got that exactly right, Bob. It's, it is a daily thing. It would be nice if it was like, I did it one time and that covered me, you know, like, you know, the, the lifetime membership kind of thing. Like, I made my one payment, I'm done, you know. But just like a relationship, you know, when we got married, it was, I love you, I'm devoted to you, I'm yours. And then it wasn't like, uh, I'll see you in eternity. It's every day we choose to be together. Relationships, every relationship is like that. If brothers and sisters and coworkers and friends and children and parents, you choose to be together or you, you know what I mean? You choose to work it out. You choose to trust that person and communicate with that person and be with that, be for them and to believe that they're for you. you. You make those choices. And there are lots of opportunities to make a different choice. To think, what did you just say about me? You know, and then get all right. There's lots of choices to do that too. So how I choose moment by moment, I have the relationship, but moment by moment, every relationship is a moment by moment thing. So even with the Lord, it's a moment by moment thing. Um, I was just remembering about the word journey. We're talking about a daily journey here. Yeah. And the word journey starts with that French word, which means day. Day, yep, jour. Soup du jour, mm-hmm. bonjour, and it's in it. It gives us the idea that it, the journey is a day-by-day thing. Yep. And that journey uh, through the valley of death. Yeah. It's all, it's life is a journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even that, you know, in that, in that psalm, it talks about you anoint my head with oil. The anointing uh, of sheep's heads with oil had to do with two things. Number one, they keep bumping into stuff and cutting their head open. And anointing is kind of like Vaseline or, or Neosporin or whatever to, to protect the wound from getting infected. So the shepherd knows that we bump into stuff and get hurt. And he puts oil there. And I'm like, what's wrong with you, stupid sheep? Why are you bumping into things? He's like, yeah, I know that hurts. And put oil there. And the other thing is, uh, sheep are very susceptible to little pests, bugs that bug, bother. And they don't have any way to get them off their head. And oil is a barrier to protect the bugs from bugging, from bugging them all the time, pestering them. And so the irritations of life and the wounds of life, your shepherd comes to provide for that. He enters into that. He comforts you in it in a very real way. Isn't that cool? Because the Lord is my shepherd. Um, let me just finish this and then we'll be done because uh, I don't know if we have a ton of time, but I, I, I love this verse. First uh, John chapter 3. Verse 19, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and 
how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. And I didn't finish the thought. I just, this is how we know, right, that we belong to Him, belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. So if you want to know how to set your heart at rest in His presence, this would be an important passage to read, right? Okay, so let's keep going. If our hearts condemn us, we know God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. So, what's that saying? We have rest. We can know we live in the truth if we keep His commands, which is basically trusting that God knows the right way enough that we will walk in His way. Now, keep going. And this is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. Over and over again in, in the book of 1 John, it's, whoever loves me keeps my commands. If you don't keep my commands, you don't love me. And it's like, oh, well, what about the taking the names of the Lord in vain and lying and stealing? And he keeps coming back to this. This is my command. Believe in the name of my son Jesus and love one another as I've commanded you. This is my command. Love others and put your faith in me. Would that direct pretty much everything about our life if we lived like that? Some of the reason we live at unrest in our souls is because we refuse to put our faith wholly in the Son and because we refuse to love other people. Simple as that. How much turmoil in my life comes because I feel justified in doubting Him or holding grudges or be feeling like I'm better than, uh, critical of, other people in my life that God's called me to love. And if I would just release that and follow what he says, there's the rest. Do we want rest for our souls or not? Well, I've, I've tried to give you some of the best thoughts that I have on what gets in the way, as well as give you the sense of the promise that's there. I hope that over the course of these past, whatever this has been, six weeks, seven weeks, whatever it is, that God has spoken and that these seeds will grow in us to a place where the people of God live at rest in their soul. Uh, like I said, next week's the cafe. When we get back together in April, the first week of April, we're going to get back to 1 Corinthians in the chapter about the resurrection. And uh, I think that's going to be a really cool study. So uh, we'll look forward to getting back to that real soon.